Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is a joy. We've always prided ourselves in bringing you the best in economics. And in the summer, when everybody thinks and writes, the best in economics can be one, two, three, four, five essays, books, or articles. This year was easy. Carmen Reinhardt and Vincent Reinhardt wrote a tour de force for Foreign Affairs magazine and made world headlines in the economics community with the pandemic depression. We are thrilled that the World Bank chief economist could join us this morning. And Mr. Reinhardt, of course, was Standish Mellon in their asset management as chief economist. To the two of you, congratulations on putting together this essay. How did you piece it together? Carmen, did you say, Vincent, we got to write this, the world's coming down to an end? Or Vince, Vincent, did you tell Carmen, we got to do this? Carmen, you start. How did you generate this important essay? Well, Tom, you know, Vincent and I have been writing together for a long time. So, you know, back in 2010, we wrote for uh, the Kansas City Fed for the for the uh, uh, Jackson Hole Conference. What the next 10 years after the global financial crisis uh, looked like, and it was taking stock of the aftermath of major shocks, you know, so this certainly classifies as a major shock and these kinds of events leave lasting consequences. They, they, and so right. that's basically uh, the theme where we, we, right. we uh, came together. Let us drive the story forward. And folks, again, I can't say enough about a full read of this article in Foreign Affairs. Vincent Reinhardt, how do we escape this depression And if we have a global or a United States depression, is stimulus and large stimulus the only answer? So the sad thing is this really is the third time we wrote this article for 2008 for the European crisis and and one more time for this pandemic depression. What do you need? You have to follow Larry Summers' advice, targeted, temporary, and timely fiscal stimulus. they did it back in March uh, with the CARES Act. They can do it again. Carmen, can you build on something for us, confusing a mechanical bounce with the recovery? Is that what we've been doing over the last few months? Yes. Um, look, the, a very simple, basic definition of recovery, a minimum minimum, is you at least have the same level of income, same level of GDP that you had before the crisis started. Uh, that took uh, quite a number of years, five years in the U.S. from the last, uh, uh, the global financial crisis and even longer for Europe. So yeah, before that, we see a snapback. We see growth rates come back simply uh, because the, the declines were so sharp in the, in the earlier in the year. But that is rebound. Recovery is when you're at least as well off as you were before, and that will take some years. So in your mind, Carmen, do you think this is a political bias, a political decision to make the call to say, look at the recovery, confuse it with a mechanical bounce and say we don't need more fiscal stimulus? Or do you just think it's a failure of the understanding of economics that we continue to make, as Vincent points out? 
It, you know, there, there is no simple answer. It has elements of both, but we've seen it in history, uh, you know, often enough that the premature declaration of victory is always been a recurring theme that, that, you know, the first signs of recovery, the green shoots means that's it. And, and, you know, I think that this time uh, we really didn't learn much from the over-optimism of 2008-2009 where growth forecasts had to be marked down repeatedly. So, Vincent, can you build on that with the idea that we're heading into a winter where we have a virus that is actually expanding, worsening, spreading, even though people are getting more concerned about the debt, about adding to it with more fiscal support? Do you think, Vincent, we are headed toward a double-dip recession that will hamper growth in a longer-term way with scarring economically that currently is not being modeled for? So the rebound has enough strength right now. Uh, there is waning fiscal impetus, but there, most importantly, there's considerable monetary accommodation. Households have a lot of savings, so they have the wherewithal to spend. It isn't as much a risk of a double dip. It's a risk that we extend the rebound, that it takes even longer to get to recovery. And the longer it takes to recover the level of activity, the more likely unfortunate things happen. Balance sheets get strained. There uh, are even more business failures. People lose more and more skills and exit the labor market. So I'm more worried about the permanent scarring associated with taking too long to get to recovery because usually you can bet on market economies. So what does that mean, Carmen, in terms of emerging markets insolvencies, the idea of this emerging markets crisis that a lot of people have been talking about, including yourself? Do you think that if we do get this period of scarring, as Vincent is talking about, that you do get that wave of insolvencies in the developing world that so far we haven't seen? Well, before we say we haven't seen, the, 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 the pickup in activity, uh, even before the pandemic, we had a lot of frailties uh, in the low-income economies and in several emerging markets. Witness Argentina, Lebanon, Venezuela, <clears throat> Ecuador, now Zambia. Th th this is a longer list than what we had in years. Uh, and of course, not everything happens simultaneously, but I think the stage is set for you know uh, a number as I said, especially vulnerable are some of the lower income countries, but not limited to no. uh, a very uh, protracted period of uh, financial fragility, both in the financial bankings, in the banking side and the possibility of, in the worst cases, outright uh, sovereign debt crises. Right. And they don't need to be with the drama of a default, but they would be. Uh, still requiring restructuring, still requiring coming to the IMF right. programs and so on. Carmen Reinhardt, Carmen Reinhardt, Vincent Reinhardt with us here this morning on their important article, The, uh, pand uh, the Pandemic Depression in Foreign Affairs this Summer. It was without question my essay of the summer. Carmen Reinhardt, a question for you, and it's delicate as World Bank chief economist. Do we completely misjudge 
the percent of GDP of stimulus aid income replacement that will be required. Are we as sort of institutions and elites completely misjudging the two to three percent of GDP is not going to get it done and the statistic is much more towards five to six percent of GDP? Um, It's not entirely a misjudgment. It's also a reality of capacity. I mean, um, you know, the the if you're if you're speaking about the emerging world, uh, the private capital flows have significantly retrenched. I wouldn't say dried up. And so, it's really the multilaterals. It's the IMF. It's the World Bank. It's the the development banks. The firepower there is very limited. Uh, the, it's not the Federal Reserve. Uh, it's not the, you know, BOJ or the ECB. These institutions uh, have constraints in how much they can deliver. So I, it's not entirely about misjudge, misjudging the seriousness of what is needed, but also, you know, having the capacity to for over well over 100 countries to deliver that kind of, of, of shot in the arm. Carmen, just quickly, we caught up with David Rosenberg around about 40 minutes ago, and he wanted your view on how higher debt loads can constrain demand, constrain potential GDP. Carmen, you could, can you speak to that for us, given how much debt we've just added to the global economy in the last nine months? Have you started doing work on that? Well, look, I, I, I've been doing a lot of work also on the issue on the what i think is for the advanced economies the more immediate issues which i think have to do with private debt uh and financial fragility this is what i alluded to uh a big shot of a big shot in the arm a big source of stimulus uh this time has also been forbearance uh on you know delaying payments uh for households and firms when those programs expire uh, do those debts continue to be repaid? Mm-hmm. So the more for the advanced economies, as opposed to some of the lower income yeah. countries and in, in some of the emerging markets, the more immediate, immediate issue is the private debt. Uh, and that is already, uh, I think, especially for for the corporate sector, the small and medium businesses are uh, already uh, a source of concern. Mm-hmm. Vincent Reinhardt, the final question to you to really look forward, maybe out of a pandemic depression, who knows what. What is your market forecast, your economic forecast, rather, call for Q1 and Q2 of next year? Advise the Biden administration this morning. Uh, so uh, we, we keep slowing from where we ha- have been. Obviously, you don't repeat a 33%. Uh, We have in the first quarter a bit of a soft patch, just 2% growth because of the absence of fiscal stimulus. And then on the assumption Washington, D.C. gets something together, uh, then closer to to 5% in the middle part of the year. Uh, What I really hope we get is something like the CARES Act of targeted and temporary and timely uh, uh, impetus rather than the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, which was timely for sure, but it had a very long spend-out rate. Now's not the time to do infrastructure. We need it over the longer haul, but right now we got to get income into the hands of people. 
Guys, we've got to leave it there. Carmen, fantastic to hear from you. Carmen Reinhardt there, World Bank Chief Economist. And Vince, thank you, sir. Vincent Reinhardt of Standish Mellon Asset Management. Thank you very much. Perfect gentleman to speak to right now on this truly our global Wall Street brief of the day. Alan Ruskin with Deutsche Bank, decades of experience of synthesizing together all of these trends. Alan, to John's point, you lead with the idea that forward a major pair will be dollar renminbi, looking for stronger yuan and the idea that the Chinese yuan will replace the Japanese yen. How does that happen? How does a yuan take over as a dominant pair? Um, Tom, look, I think the Chinese economy is substantially larger than Japan's already, and is only that gap is only going to get wider over time. So its real economy influence is, is certainly increasing. And obviously, at the same time, the authorities in China are encouraging internationalization. They're encouraging uh, the CNY's reserve status to increase over time. So the pull factor in terms of official flows is going to increase as well. So the combination of the real economy side and, you know, the encouragement that I, you know, I think we're going to see from the authorities on an ongoing basis is, is just going to uh, yeah. help the uh, Chinese currency and, and its pull effect, you know, against uh, other currencies in the region. Alan Ruskin, there's a parlor game to when strong euro hurts Germany, strong euro hurts Finland, or strong yen hurts Tokyo. At what level does strong renminbi hurt Beijing? Are we near there? Look, I think there's going to be a lot of sensitivities in terms of uh, even a very modest appreciation in the UN. But uh, I think we forget, I think, you know, if, uh, memory serves me right, the 10-year average is roughly around 650 on, on dollar China. So uh, I think we shouldn't get too caught up with what's happened over the last uh, six months or so, given the appreciation. We're actually back in a zone that's actually you know, very well traveled. So uh, we shouldn't be at points of extreme sensitivity. But, you know, if we saw dollar China go to, uh, say, 625 or those sort of levels, I think uh, the uh, uh, there would be um, more concern on the part of the Chinese authorities. Alan, important to look at the currency pairs elsewhere, Euro-China, China-Japanese yen. And what we've seen is that Chinese strength against the euro in a more pronounced way as well. Do you think that makes it, for the ECB at least, makes them less sensitive to what's happening on euro-dollar as we approach 119 and maybe go through 120? Yeah, I think for everybody, uh, if they look at their own currencies and they say, okay, well, yes, we are stronger against the dollar, but in fact, uh, most other currencies are also stronger against the dollar. So net-net, there's not much change, as you say, between, you know, call it uh, the euro and other crosses. Then you get reduced sensitivity from the uh, currency side and people recognize that this is a dollar story. This is not a, a China yuan story or a euro dollar story. Um, up until now, it's been a mix, I would say, of a dollar story and a Chinese yuan story. Very little in the way of really being a euro story, which has been stuck in the mud. So there's a question. Well, Alan, we typically ask a question. Just quickly, let me weigh in, Alan. We typically ask yeah. the question whether we would need a weaker dollar and whether the world needs a weaker dollar. Do you think the world needs a stronger Chinese currency? Um, 
you know, the imbalances have tended to grow over time in this particular crisis. The current account uh, surplus in China is uh, substantial in an absolute basis, less as a percentage of Chinese GDP. So I think there are potential distortions on that side. Um, I would say, you know, let the market do its thing. I think that's the most important thing. And then the imbalances will not build in a substantial way. So I was trying to jump in because honestly, I was just so uh, compelled by this argument here that there used to be this world order where everyone was trying to depreciate their currency. And all of a sudden, there is less emphasis on that because there is a question, recovering, getting money into your economy is better. At what point does strength in currency matter again from a trade perspective? And I wonder about this with the UN, given the fact that Chinese officials have been willing to step in and given the fact that internationally, this has been such a big driver of flow into the nation? Well, I think, uh, you know, what's interesting, if you look at currencies generally and and on a uh, medium-term basis, the valuations that you're seeing are not that extreme. So, you know, the dollar is within about 5% of of fair value, uh, give or take, depending on different metrics. And, you know, that's that's not extreme by any matter of, uh, you know, any, any measure. And uh, the same can be said for most of the other currencies as well. So, you know, I would say the yuan, euro, uh, yes, uh, you know, the dollar looks on the rich side. Yes, the euro looks a little, little cheap. Uh, yes, the Chinese yuan uh, looks a little on the expensive side as well. But in terms of the actual absolutes, um, these are not huge overshoots and undershoots. And I think for that reason, uh, it's actually going to be relatively comfortable terrain for the authorities to deal with at this point in time. It could get a lot messier than this. I've, you know, certainly seen it in a much worse shape in the early 1990s or, you know, mid-1980s. Uh, you know, these are relatively benign circumstances for the authorities to deal with. On the flip side, Alan, if you take a look at derivative positioning, you can see that the short position on the dollar is increasing and sort of the conviction, the complacency in markets around this consensus call seems to be growing. Do you see a potential for a short squeeze or some sort of information to come out perhaps about the vaccine being delayed that could potentially lead to a reversal here and strength in the dollar that could upend a lot of these trades? Um, you know, the positioning, I think, is also quite modest in the grand scheme of things. Uh, you highlight, you know, the vaccine uh, story, which I think is, you know, pertinent. It's going to be critical for the real economy for the next year or two years, you know, crucial for markets and is probably the dominant theme, I think, you know, on an ongoing basis. Some think it's maybe already priced in, but I think that's way too early. And I think, you know, if you saw the reversal in those sort of trades, and absolutely, I mean, I think, you know, you, would get, you could get some sort of short squeeze. Um, that's always possible into year end, into December. But I would tend to emphasize the trend trades. I would say the vaccine trade is, you know, long the cyclicals in G10, Canada, stocky, knocky, et cetera. I think it's still long EM. It plays to the long Asia trade, et cetera. So I think it's still uh, on a medium term basis is still playing towards the short dollar trade rather than, you know, uh, focusing too much on the squeeze potential. Stocky knocky, just classic FX lingo there. Alan, thank you. Alan Ruskin, Deutsche (laughs) Bank Chief International Strategist. Sweden, Norway, just in case anyone's interested. (laughs) Guy Johnson's (laughs) favourite currency pair, actually. Guy Johnson's Mm favourite currency pair, stocky knocky. (laughs) 
John, Lisa, and I, and all of Team Surveillance feel very strongly punditry's out and experts are very in. Deborah Fuller is not only at the prestigious University of Washington School of Microbiology, but also is definitive in labs, in the processing, and the development of vaccines. And we're honored that Dr. Fuller could join us this morning. Dr. Fuller, uh, we've got a lot of questions about vaccines and all that. I want to go to my childhood, which was the dreaded booster shot. Is a booster shot now the same as it was in 1960? Or is a booster shot now so efficacious and the technology so much better, it's not a big deal? A booster shot in, in vaccines, particularly the COVID-19 vaccines that we're, uh, we're seeing right now, is absolutely essential to, uh, to increase uh, and, and bring the immunity uh, in individuals that get the vaccine up to high enough levels to protect against uh, the infection. So uh, booster shots can feel dreaded in the sense that you, you might experience uh, increased reactogenicity, in other words, a bit more soreness in your arm, but that tells you that it's working. That's what, uh, when you get that soreness and sort of um, feeling kind of almost like you you're getting an infection. Uh, initially, that tells you that your immune system is mounting a really good response to the vaccine and that you will likely be protected against an infection. So Tom Keen is talking about booster shots in light, I assume, of the AstraZeneca news that came out this morning. Really confusing, more confusing than what we got out of Pfizer and Moderna in terms of efficacy, with some statistics saying 70% efficacy, others saying 90% when you have a half dose initially followed by a full dose of this vaccine. Dr. Fuller, how complicated is the rollout effort when you do have to have two rounds of a shot in order to get it, uh, make it effective? I mean, in terms of tracking, in terms of distribution, and frankly, in terms of how long it takes to get immunity. That's a really important question. I, an ideal pandemic vaccine would be one that works in a single dose. And that's just simply because if people have to receive a second dose, often uh, compliance and coming back for the second dose can go down, especially if they experienced uh, some reactivity with the, with the first dose. So uh, many of these uh, companies were looking at the immunogenicity after the first dose, uh, but the levels of immune responses are just not high enough uh, to uh, be confident that it's going to provide uh, the level of efficacy that's needed. On the other hand, after the second dose, seeing 90% plus efficacy, that's as good as the vaccine is really going to get. And that's really what we're going to need ultimately to shut down this pandemic. Doctor, that's science. Let's talk about the logistics. How many vaccines, vaccinations do you think we could roll out in America over the next three months? Well, Moderna and Pfizer, uh, as a result of their uh, promising uh, data now, AstraZeneca will uh, likely be applying for emergency use authorization in early December. Uh, they should have uh, enough safety data by then to be able to uh, to make the application. That, of course, will only be uh, the vaccines initially will only be available to, uh, in a limited number, uh, limited numbers. That would be for high risk groups. That would be for uh, your first responders and medical personnel. The majority of us really won't be seeing these vaccines until, until about the spring. Uh, and some of the, uh, the challenges between then and now will be uh, being able to produce sufficient numbers of doses. Billions and billions is what we're going to need because 
we estimate at least 50 to 60 percent of the population will ultimately need to be vaccinated to, to shut down the pandemic. And, and so that really raised an important point is that we really need multiple vaccines, not just one. It's not going to be one silver bullet being able to shut this mm-hmm. down. Uh, the fact that we're seeing all these vaccines look really at about 90 percent right. efficacy is super promising. Dr. Fuller, George Cervellos over at Deutsche Bank today has a Deutsche Bank chart out on herd immunity and its lovely smooth curves of expectations. Do you trust the math and the forecasting of herd immunity or are we actually making it up as we go? That math is really elegant stuff and it is really based on some uh, important measurements. so, yeah, we can trust the math. What we, what we don't know, some of the things that we don't know Please. going into this math is, is the changes in the infection rate that could occur between now and then. So the predictions are based on, you know, what we know now. And as we have seen, we've seen a huge surge in cases as the weather cooled. And that actually exceeded uh, the, uh, the number of cases that was initially project- predicted at this time for, you know, for you know, reasons that, for for example, pandemic fatigue and stuff that really can't be predicted. So, uh, so while the math is is precise, it's based on what we know, not what we don't know. Doctor, appreciate your time, your thoughts, and honesty. Doctor Deborah Fuller, there of the University of Washington School of Medicine. This is a joy. David Rosenberg, for years, held court at Merrill Lynch and owned the high ground on parsing price change. He was absolutely brilliant and hugely read, moving on to all sorts of good work in his Canada. And now Rosenberg uh, Research, their chief economist, strategist in Montreal, uh, Canadian fan. David Rosenberg, I want you to filter disinflation into what yield does. Is it just about a demand for paper, price up, forcing yield down? Well, look, I think that uh, there's a whole variety of things that goes into bond yield determination. Uh, you know, the uh, expectations on the Fed and uh, real rates, inflation expectations, obviously both very large. Uh, I'm in the camp that thinks that uh, we're probably caught in a range. Uh, I'm always amazed that people think the 10 years is going to break above 1%, go back to 2%. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think that uh, there's still going to be uh, globally a downward pull on Treasury yields, uh, because I think inflation expectations, given the size of the output gap, are going to come down over time. And at the same time, if you're taking a look around the world, uh, you take a look at the average AAA yield, uh, it's barely above zero. <laughs> and in the U.S., uh, you know, you get uh, at least, um, uh, you know, 70 or 80 basis points. Uh, so, you know, it's a, uh, in, in, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And I still think treasuries offer uh, very good value on a relative basis. David, I think what you're saying is really, really important. It's about the post-COVID world and determining, defining what is normal. And many people seem to think that post-COVID with a vaccine, treasury yields have no business south of 1%. You're pushing back against that, David. Well, I am pushing back against that because, you know, what's your expectation on what the Fed's going to be doing? Uh, I mean, ultimately, uh, your, your, your forecast in the 10-year yield has to be some scrolled expectation of what short-term rates are going to be doing over a certain horizon. The Fed's already told you that, uh, you know, they're not going to start to raise rates until inflation gets above 2%. Well, well, we'll wait a long time for that. 
and for us to uh, return to full employment. And that's going to take a long time as well. Uh, on top of that, look, there's no doubt that we're going to get a couple of quarters of pent-up demand release once the vaccine is uh, broadly distributed. That's going to happen. You know, which exactly quarter is going to happen next year? I mean, who knows? But it's going to happen. So we're going to get a couple of quarters of pent-up demand release. And then what does the world post-COVID look like after that? And uh, we never got the inflation uh, from 09 to 2019, despite all the stimulus, despite the Fed. You know, the reality is that the same thing, the fundamental secular developments have nothing to do with COVID that brought us to lowflation and low interest rates and low growth. Aging demographics, well, how has that changed? And monumental debts. Uh, so you're going to have the Reinhardts on. Well, we'll talk about then, I hope, uh, how these massive run-up and deficits and debts are going to be dealing with those, resolving those. There's going to be a huge constraint and aggregate demand for years to come. How are you going to get inflation out of that? So we're going to get a bump in growth. Bond yields may go up 25, 30 basis points, and then they're going to come right back down again because the same fundamental forces that brought us down 200 basis points on the 10-year note <clears> in the last cycle are going to be the same forces that drive yields back down towards zero David, in the next number of years. This is fascinating to me, and it comes at a time when a growing number of strategists expect the Federal Reserve to increase their longer-dated bond purchases at their meeting next month. There is this expectation that $80 billion of purchases a month will be more heavily weighted toward the 10-year, 20- and 30-year maturities. Why should the Fed be doing that if you are right and if yields are going to remain low because the economy just is not going to grow that quickly? Well, that's just another form of uh, what they used to call Operation Twist. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, who knows if the Fed is going to uh, go that route or not this quickly. Um, it's not as if a 10-year Treasury note <clears throat> yield has really broken out. It's really just in a range, you can argue, in the top end of the range, in the context of a stock market that's gone up 60% from the lows, is pretty remarkable in its own right. Um, but if, look, that's the, basically the threat that will always be there, is that if bond yields become unhinged, uh, the Fed will come in hard and, uh, and cap uh, longer-term longer yields because uh, that would be a form of financial market tightening. Uh, it would cause mortgage rates to go up. It would you know, uh, then, um, you know, detract from one of the positives in the economy, which has been housing. So uh, I think that that is an ongoing threat, uh, just to, to know that the Fed can come in. It's a, like you were talking about credit spreads before. Knowing the Fed is going to come in and buy corporate credit, buy high-yield bonds, just knowing that threat exists mm-hmm. is what's caused investors' comfort to go in and, and add on risk uh, in corporate right. credit. It's very similar at the long end of the curve, where you might be more comfortable taking on duration risks, knowing that the Fed could do this at any point in time. Whether or not they do it or not, or they right. talk about it in the minutes, I mean, who knows? But uh, that's still out there. And that alone helps cap the long end of the curve. Mm. David, I want to talk, you mentioned the Reinhardts, and we're thrilled they're with us uh, later in the hour, folks. My essay of the summer, The Pandemic Depression. David, pretty gloomy assessment. You're not a gloomy guy. What do equity markets do if you get Reinhardt caution and gloom? Well, look, you know, we, we had, you know, we had um, our, you know, the worst recession uh, since the 1930s. Uh, we had a one-month drawdown of 35% uh, in the stock market. Uh, and then we bounce right back. And actually, when you go back to some of the most horrific days on economic data, when we're going back, Tom, to like April and May, like at the depths of despair, uh, the market's actually already started to rally. 
Um, and so I think that the mantra of, you know, don't fight the Fed, uh, there is no alternative, you know, all these things that I used to roll my eyes at, you know, it seems to have worked in terms of uh, creating confidence and sentiment. It's a confidence-led market, a sentiment-led market. We have a, a, a two-year, like when you're taking a look at the PE multiple on 2022 estimates, it's 18. I remember when I started in the business, an 18 multiple on trailing would have been unbelievably expensive. Today, people think, oh, an 18 multiple on two-year forward earnings, the market's still cheap. So that's the mentality of the marketplace. So I would say that as long as you have the Fed there saying we're going to pump the system to liquidity, um, and so long as you have this belief that the vaccines will return us to the old normal, uh, which is not my view, but that's the market's view, uh, then the stock market may well continue to surprise on the upside. Um, and so, you know, I'm not bullish on the market, yeah. but that's the narrative. And the narrative, that narrative has certainly won the day over the course of the past six, seven, eight months. The old, old, old normal a few crises ago. David, great to catch up. Tremendous respect for the amount of work that goes into your research and fantastic to have you with us on the program. David Rosenberg there of Rosenberg Research. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.